Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. We've got Joe Healy here with me, and we are getting ready to discuss week three of college baseball. It's an exciting weekend around the country. And, and Joe, there's just it's a stacked weekend. There's there's a lot to talk about. We have the Shriners College Classic highlighting the whole thing. There's some fun series. It, this is kind of when we, we get to the meat of the college baseball schedule, really. Yeah, this is this is the highlight weekend of especially the non-conference part of the part of the season, and, and a lot of times it ends up being a, a highlight just of the schedule in general. This is also, as a side note, the time of year when I start to get bummed out uh, because I convince myself the season is almost over because it feels weird that we're at week three already. It's and not even then, the end of February, Joe. I, I, look, this is how my <laughs> mind works. I didn't say it was right or that it should be that way. But, you know, conference play starts in earnest uh, next week with the ACC getting going. I know there are other instances of that. But um, so, you know, then, then the mind starts to go, oh, we're already in conference play. And then, you know, conference play moves quick. And so, you know, that's just kind of a slippery slope snowball thing I have going on in my head. Again, not saying it's the right way to think about it, but it is when I start to think about the impending doom of not having college baseball in our <laughs> lives again, even though it's still you know, uh, basically four months away from being all said and done in Omaha. So, I, you know, that's just the way my, my weird brain works. But, yes, back on topic. It's a fantastic weekend of college baseball, the best one in non-conference, and I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, so we want to hit on some of the highlights here, and, and uh, then we're going to talk a little later. This is the 20th anniversary of the Shriners Hospitals for Children College Classic, which has not always been called that, but um, it, it's kind of been the premier non-conference tournament for now two decades so we're we're going to delve into the the retrospective a little bit on that but we want to talk about this weekend's shriners tournament taking place as it always does at minute Maid park also not the not the name that that stadium was for the first one but it's what they call it these days and so it's a this year the the format is kind of a big 12 sec challenge we've got three big 12 teams baylor oklahoma and texas and they'll be playing three SEC teams and around Robin, the SEC teams, Arkansas, LSU, and Missouri. So it's, a, it's an intriguing field when you look at it. Some top 25 teams, some teams right on the edge of the top 25. Well, I guess most notably Texas among that. And then, you know, you're looking at a Baylor team that's been a little lost to start the season. And Missouri, which is frankly operating under everyone's radar, I think, because they're not postseason eligible, though if it merits it, they are eligible for the Baseball America Top 25. I just want to clarify that for everyone. <laughs> no, that's very important to, uh, to, to Missouri's season. I'm at sure this Steve point. Beezer is super <laughs> concerned about you know, yeah. whether or not they're there. But they, they have a lot of talent. There's going to be a lot of scouts at this event. There always is. The, the Friday games always feature some, uh, some excellent pitching matchups this year. You've got Cade Cavalli, preseason All-American at Oklahoma, Cole Henry, uh, LSU, big time arm, Connor Noland at, at Arkansas, um, you know, Bryce Elder at, at Texas, Ian Bedell. So there, there's a lot of, of talent on the mound. There, there's some big time players in the field, like Nick Lofton at Baylor, um, you know, obviously Casey Martin and Heston Kerstad. Everyone knows the, the, that preseason All American duo at Arkansas, and you know, Daniel Cabrera at LSU, and, and the list goes on from there. So it should be a fun one down in Houston. I will be there. Uh, for for all of the action and, and and Joe, when we look at this field, you know what what are you looking at overall as as we get ready for the tournament? I think it's an opportunity for a couple of teams to kind of tell us 
what they are. I mean, I think one of the teams that has a lot to gain is Texas. You talk about them being on just on the outside of the top 25. They were a team that was kind of on the periphery of that discussion for us, certainly with a, with a winning weekend this weekend. You know, uh, we'll have to see, but it, it, that feels like something that would get them in. Um, we kind of came into the season wondering what they would ultimately be. Um, there's a long season to go. I mean, don't forget that they did win a series with LSU last year. And, you know, ultimately, you know, nothing really came of that. I mean, we saw how that, <laughs> that ultimately played out. So there is a lot of season left. I don't say that to be alarmist about Texas. That's not what I'm doing here. I, I just say all that to say this is one data point, but it is a big data point coming into a season when we weren't sure what to expect with Texas. This would go a long way toward convincing at least me that, okay, last year was kind of a blip on the radar. This year we've kind of got things a little more little more sorted out. I feel the same way, and it's a different thing, but I feel a similar way about Oklahoma. I've been high on Oklahoma for a while, and they've kind of, they've, they've taken care of business so far. There's still a lot of question marks about the offense, but I'm excited to see, you know, to hear from you and, and to see what ends up coming of, of the matchups of Oklahoma's pitching against the offense, particularly of Arkansas, which obviously is a fantastic group of hitters there. Um, so I'm interested to see that. I'm also interested to see you know, they are going to be facing big-time pitching for Mizzou, LSU, and Arkansas. And, um, you know, is the offense just quiet all weekend, or do they show signs of being able to be a little bit more than they were last year? And if Oklahoma is going to be serious about being the type of team that gets to Omaha, they're going to have to be able to hit against pitching staffs like that. Right now we have them in the middle of the rankings, which suggests we think they could maybe be an Omaha team if things go right, but certainly a team with a lot more to prove. So, uh, those are two teams. Now, those are both on the Big 12 side uh, of, of the, of the it's not a bracket, but of the ledger, if you will. Um, on the SEC side, you know, we've been a little bit slower on Arkansas, not that we don't believe in Arkansas, um, but certainly dominating this field, and I think they could do that, uh, would go a long way towards showing them to be a national title contender right up there with some of the teams we have at the very top, with like a, like a Florida, for example. Um, because this, this could be with a team that's kind of finding itself like Baylor, Oklahoma that has some questions, and, and Texas that we're not quite sure about just yet. There is, it feels like there is an opportunity for Arkansas to go in there and emphatically sweep their way through this field and really look impressive doing it. Yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm right there with you on, on all of that. I, the Oklahoma and Texas stuff for sure. I, I'm very curious about both of those offenses against better pitching staffs. And I don't think these three staffs are the best in the SEC, but they are three very, very strong ones. And so what Oklahoma and Texas, which have these offensive questions, do against those, those staffs, I, you know, I, I think that is going to really tell us something that we haven't been able to find out yet. Oklahoma won that series on opening weekend against Virginia, but it was more about just like matching up with their pitching. It wasn't that they really... Uh, you know, dominated Virginia's pitching staff offensively. So they, they just kind of outpitched Virginia to win that series, which is significant. But now they're going to be doing, they're either going to have to do that again or they're going to have to find some more offense. And, you know, with the offenses that Arkansas and LSU present, especially, I'm thinking that you're not just going to sit there and win games three to two. I, I think you're going to have to score. And, you know, one, one thing about playing this in Minute Maid is that the Crawford boxes out in left field, make for a pretty short porch, uh, you know, especially when we're talking about college kids, even in the big leagues, it's a, a kind of a, a launching zone there. But with, with college kids, with metal bats, that's a very reachable home run. And you see guys turn on balls all the time down there in that ballpark. And so it, 
I fully expect some of these Arkansas and LSU hitters and, and, and others to, to take advantage of that. But for teams like Oklahoma and Texas that, that seem to be a little more about the pitching, preventing that is going to be a key for them. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And there have certainly been years um, where teams that fit that profile of not an offensive juggernaut like, like Arkansas. I mean, if Arkansas puts up 10 runs a game out there, it would not be a surprise. But we're, we're looking for a little more from some of these other teams. And there have been teams in the past that have come in there with offenses that are more like Texas and Oklahoma that have had good weekends for, the, for those reasons. I mean, you put a couple guys on, and then you, you're able to bang one off the wall. Because it's not just that the Crawford boxes are closed for home run purposes. You can kind of hit some fly balls off the base of that thing. You know, that scrape yes. the wall on the way down, you know, like a 316-foot fly ball. I mean, it's a very tall wall, <laughs> and guys don't have a ton of experience with it. You get very minimal pregame time there because the game transition. You right. get some practice time on Thursday, but there's not a whole lot of like work in the left field wall to figure out how this works. And oh, by the way, it jut, those boxes just jut out. It's a direct right angle. So all of a sudden from left center, like these boxes are, are, are just on you. So it's a very tricky left field. And like to your point, that means some fly balls that might be catchable wind up hitting the wall because guys don't know how to play it. There will also be 100% a ball get some poor left or center fielder is going to horribly misplay a ball up against that fence and left center where that bullpen is where it's just chain link and the ball dies when you hit yeah. it yeah like some someone's going to misplay a ball there because they're not exactly sure where the padding is on the wall and where the chain link is on the wall or if it's the left fielder he doesn't realize that he's past the Crawford boxes now so he thinks he's up against the wall and he's not like that th- that that tournament is good for one of those every year and you you feel for him cuz to your point these kids aren't playing in, 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 a, in, a, in an arrangement like that most of the time. So it's new to them. They haven't had a lot of experience with it. And through the years, we've seen our fair share of big leaguers do that kind of thing out there. So it's, there's really no shame in it, but just so you feel for them. But, but yeah, there, there will be at least one of those this weekend as well. Yeah, so I'm interested to, to see how that, how that shakes out. I'm also interested from the SEC perspective, since you touched on most of the Big 12 stuff. I mean, yes, what Arkansas can do here in terms of you know, establishing itself is definitely there. But LSU hasn't left the box yet, and they've stumbled a couple times now. They lost to Nichols. They lost to Eastern Kentucky. They're now going to be taking, you know, on a better competi- better level of competition than they did last week. They did play Indiana, which I think is, you know, on this level. And, and they took two out of three, but they're, they're now going to see you know, some better competition this weekend away from home. So what does that look like for LSU? This is also Arkansas's first trip outside of bomb. Uh, I'm less concerned about them. They are undefeated. They've really handled their business. LSU, meanwhile, is still working through some stuff and is coming off a couple shaky performances in the last week. So now on a bigger stage, there will be a lot of LSU fans there. It's the, the Houston is the, the biggest uh, concentration of LSU alumni I think just period, but maybe it's outside of Louisiana, and you know, so they're gonna come. Their fans are definitely gonna be there and be loud, supporting them. But it's it's different than, than being in the box. So what does that look like for the Tigers, uh, the LSU Tigers? That is is uh, one of the the big uh, questions for me coming in. That that's one of the things I want to see answered more than anything. Well, and we talk about the offenses at Texas and, and Oklahoma still leaving a little something to be desired. I mean, LSU's hitting two thirty one as a team. Um, now there've been it's some. Not going to get it done. There's they, <laughs> there's been some big. I mean, Cade Beloso has been outstanding so far, and 
Um, he's, he's a fun player. But um, yeah, to your point, 231 is not really going to get it done, and, and they, they won't hit 231 all year. But this is not necessarily going to be the weekend where you expect to, uh, just by showing up, do better than that. Um, the other thing about it is, too, is that's 231. And, like, I like Indiana's talent. Um, but I like their offense more than their pitching staff. And so, you know, given that in Eastern Kentucky, and that's no disrespect to the Hoosiers or Colonels, but I would have thought that maybe the inverse would have been true, where Indiana put up some runs on LSU, and that's how that series was kind of tight. It wasn't necessarily that way. So, um, yeah, so they certainly have things to prove uh, there as well. Uh, just quickly on Mizzou, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but um, yes, maybe the air has come out of the balloon a little bit for this Mizzou team because of what they've dealt with really the last two years. I mean, if um, they've really had this hanging over them for a couple of years, and I covered it um, last year and, and went out to Mizzou and, and you know, talked to the, uh, Steve Beezer about it and, and, you know, talked to some players about it. And, um, you know, they were obviously, last year it was, they were appealing, and so there was a chance they could get into the postseason. They were disappointed to just miss out on that. Um, but they kind of dealt with that last year early in the season, and it really kind of, um, you know, Coach Beezer was very open about, you know, we got out of the box flat because we had just got this news. And so it really kind of, you could argue, ended up keeping them out of the postseason anyway if they'd have gotten off to a better start. And then this year, obviously, it it does come down. They're going to miss out. So it's really been two years that they've they've had to deal with this. And um, But with that said, um, still a talented team. Um, they are going to pitch well. That's that's kind of what you alluded to. Ian Bedell, obviously, is, is a name that, that folks ought to know. But they've still got some really good pitching. They've got some some bats, like a guy like Peter Zimmerman, who those Crawford boxes are imminently reachable uh, for a guy like him. So they're not going to come in there, go in there and necessarily roll over. I would not expect, um, I, they would not be the team I would pick to, to roll through this tournament. Um, but they're not going to be a walkover for any of the Big 12 teams by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a fair representation of the Tigers. And uh, we're going to see them right away off the bat. They, they get the opener there. So, you know, we're not going not gonna to waste any time trying to wait around to see what Ian Bedell looks like and, and, and what the, the Missouri Tigers have to offer. Friday is an interesting day. You get the Arkansas-Oklahoma matchup in the, in the middle of the day. And then Texas LSU uh, obviously has a lot, of, a lot of fan appeal. A lot of people are going to be in, in the stands for that one. Should be a pretty fun environment for the nightcap, uh, starting it off with, with, with Baylor and, and Missouri there at, at 11 a.m. Uh, local time, 12 a.m. Eastern, or 12 p.m. Eastern, excuse me. And you can watch all that Eastern action. 12 a.m. Eastern will be something. <laughs> well, we'll still be there at 12 a.m. Eastern. That's true. You will be. 100%. Uh, that'll, that'll just be the end of the LSU uh, Texas game. You can watch all of that streaming on, on MLB.com uh, so that, you know, definitely worth tuning in especially for those Friday games, but throughout the weekend. So, Joe, we, we've talked about some of the things we're looking for. Who is the, uh, the, the team or the player that has the most to gain this weekend, if we, if we have to pick one? It's a good question. Um, you know what, I'll go. The, I think the easy thing to do would be, would be team. Um, I'm going to say it's Cade Cavalli. Because um, I think the easy thing would be to go with a team, and that's not to hamstring you if you want to go with a team. I'm not trying to undercut you if that's the way you're going to go. Uh, but I'd go Cade Cavalli because I think I, you know, there, there are still questions about is the numbers so far this season have been good. The stuff is clearly good. There are still questions about is he a true workhorse that can throw 100 innings, and we'll not know that until May. But there's also a question of when you face really good offenses and when you face really talented offenses, can, can you uh, – you know, 
pitch along with them and show well and potentially dominate against those types of lineups because that's going to bode well for his pro future, obviously, but also in the immediate term bode well for Oklahoma being a team that can make a deep postseason run because if he can't be that, um, they're, they're obviously not going to, their ceiling is not going to be as high as we think it could be. So I'm going to go Cade Cavalli trying to prove that he can be that kind of guy this weekend. I think that's fair, and he'll get that matchup against Arkansas to Which do it against. Which is important. Yes. I think that's and an important piece of that. That's probably the best offense he'll play this year. I don't want to take anything away from Texas Tech, um, but I, I would say Arkansas is probably the most potent offense he'll see all season long. So if he can do it against the Hogs, that's a big confidence boost going forward, even if Texas Tech winds up being better offensively. Doing it against Arkansas on this stage will be big for him confidence-wise, big for all of the seniors confidence-wise, if they can get it done uh, on Friday. So while you're, you might say I'm taking the easy way out here, I, you know, I think <laughs> Arkansas does have a lot to, to gain here. They, they could walk out of here um, feeling really good about themselves, but in some extent, I think they already do. Our poll might change if they walk out of here with with three wins, but I know Arkansas fans are already disappointed with where they are in, in our top 25 and probably will think where we put them at the end of the weekend is just where they should have been all along. So I'm not going to go with the Hogs. I'm going to go with the Horns. The Horns are, are 9-0 and right now, but I don't know that I know anything more about Texas than I did at the start of the season. And that's maybe being a little unfair. I, I probably know a little bit more, but... You know, the competition to this point at Rice, Rice is winless. Uh, Texas San Antonio is a nice 7-2. and two. That's a nice midweek win. Lamar in the midweek, Sam Houston in the midweek. A couple of those midweek wins are, are nice, but they're, it's hard to read too much into midweek games in February, at home especially. And then they swept Boise State, which is restarting its program for the first time in 40 years. So I don't know what to make of this 9-0. And maybe, it, maybe it's significant, maybe it's not significant. I don't know, but I do know that I'm going to know a lot more after the first two days when they play LSU and Arkansas. And Missouri on, on Sunday is a significant game as well. But those first two days especially, you know LSU fans are going to be there, you know Arkansas fans are going to be there. It's probably going to be the most hostile environment Texas has seen so far, no disrespect to the Reckling Park crowd that they saw on opening weekend. But you know the, the LSU fans and Arkansas fans are going to be pretty into this thing. And, you know, those games are big games, lots of eyeballs. And so I'm very interested to see how a young Texas team, we've talked about how many freshmen they're playing, Trey Faltine at shortstop, you know, a big part of this. What's that going to look like in the big moments? You know, I, I think Bryce Elder will be a good matchup on Friday night. But beyond that, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of unknowns. And I'm looking forward to having some more knowns about this Texas team come Sunday night. Yeah, those, uh, certainly the atmosphere for Texas LSU is going to be uh, lit. Is it, Are kids still saying lit? I, I am. Okay. I, I don't know what the youths are. Uh, yeah, the youths <laughs> is who, we need to go younger. Like, we don't have interns in the office yet, so we can't ask them. I'll, uh, like, I'll do be... some research this weekend. We'll, okay. we'll see what these I don't know say. if the kids are still saying lit or not. I know I see it on, like, team Twitters on, you know, yeah, that's, uh, that's but that's not, not necessarily a great representation. So... Um, but that atmosphere will be really great. Uh, to, of, the, of the local teams, and this is where my years and years of experience of going to this tournament as a Houstonian come into play, I mean, of the local or semi-local teams, um, Texas is the one that draws the best. I mean, A&M, uh, maybe that's 1A and 1B. Um, but Texas certainly shows up for this. They have every year. And 
of the teams that have been from out of state, I mean, LSU, the, the year they were in it just several years ago, was the best crowds I've seen in that tournament period. Um, so that place is going to be packed out to the, you know, to the extent it gets packed out for, you know, the lower bowl anyway, will be, uh, will be absolutely packed. So I'd, I'd expect there might be some people in the upper deck, which happens rarely, but does occasionally yeah, happen. Yeah, that, that very well could be. And those little, the little, um, the premium seating that's on that, uh, the, the level that has the, um, I'm, I'm really, my words are struggling here. That it's second like level, suites? yeah, like this, it's not the suites, uh, yeah. but like the... I, I, club seating of club some seating. sort. Thank you, that's it. Yeah, they do the club seating where you have the food inside and the seats outside. Um, they, you know, they sell packages for that and those, you know, I think a lot of people get those for like, you know, folks they went to college with or just a group of friends. And so those end up, for those games, get really packed out. So I'm... Uh, I'm looking forward to maybe catching a little bit. I will be at, at ECU this weekend, and those games are relatively early in the day. They do like noon and 4.30, so I'm kind of crossing my fingers that I can get back home in time to watch at least some of that stream um, because it, it sounds like, I mean, not, not only is it going to be a, a good game, but I think that the atmosphere should add a lot to it. Yeah, I, you will definitely be home in time before those games end. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be at Minute Maid until the wee hours of the morning, central time. Uh, the fact that TCU is not there means that we are not guaranteed a 15-inning game on Saturday night. So for that, uh, I am thankful. That's right. I always like seeing the the, the Horn Frogs there, but it, it does mean that Saturday night is going to be a very long night. So we'll see what this one looks like. Uh, I would encourage everyone to to if they're if they're interested, you know, pull up the stream on MLB.com this weekend. It, it's a great tournament. These teams are great. Shriners Hospitals for Children is great. Uh, the cause is a great one, and, and um, I'm looking forward to, to seeing you know, all the Shriners guys there, Alec Kabakubin, uh, the, the Shriners uh, de facto spokesman, uh, you know, making an appearance, I'm sure, as well, along with some of the other uh, patients that uh, work, work with the Shriners hospitals. And one of the great things about this tournament is the connection between Shriners and the teams, that each of the teams are, you know, meet with a, a you know, have a patient out, at some point during fall ball and, and are connected to them during the tournament. They're, they're all down there, um, you know, kind of cheering the, the team on throughout the weekend. And, uh, you know, just to see the way the players interact with these kids is, is one of the biggest highlights of the weekend for me every year. And so um, if you don't know much about the Shriners missions, I, I would encourage you to, to look into that as well. It's a great organization and the tournament is great. It's uh it's a wonderful time this weekend, and, and we're we're very happy to uh, to be able to you know see see this tournament reach its 20th anniversary, which is uh, you know just a pretty significant mark, and and for them to to be now partnering with the the Shriners Hospitals is uh, you know just a, a fantastic pairing for college baseball. All right, so Joe, before we move on and talk about some of the other action here this weekend, I want to uh, bring bring us a message from our our podcast sponsor, Get Roman. If you were to guess, on average, how many days in the U.S. people have to wait to see a Dr. Joe, what, what would you say? 15.4. Is it a decimal number? It, it's not a decimal. Oh, I, I, okay. It's probably a decimal. I, the number I was given was rounded. And they say Americans have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. So if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Grab your phone, your computer, whatever, complete a free online visit, 
and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you free with two-day shipping. Free two-day shipping for your medication. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com BA for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Remember that that's GetRoman.com BA for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Make sure you use that URL so they know that you came from the Baseball America College podcast. We are um, you know, excited to, to be partnering with Roman here. So make sure that, that if you do go in and check them out, that, that you use that, that URL. Again, it's GetRoman.com slash BA. All right, Joe, the other really intriguing thing this weekend for me is Georgia is playing Georgia Tech in a three-game series. This is what typically they had been doing, a midweek series over the course of about a month, um, playing at home and home, and then a third game at, at the Braves Stadium, Turner, SunTrust, Truist, whatever they're calling it now. This year, however, they're, they're changing it up, and you wrote about that this week, which you can read about over at BaseballAmerica.com. Uh, but, Joe, why don't you lay out what the change is and why the change is this weekend to a, this year to a, a weekend series? Yeah, so the, I mean, they're moving it to, to, like you said, to a weekend series, um, you know, in the early part of the season, um, you know, to kind of fit in with some of the other rivalry series that you see. We obviously had Florida-Miami last week and Clemson-South Carolina this weekend, which is a series we won't touch on here, but is another big rivalry series that, that is going on this weekend. And that is not necessarily an accident that they looked at that those rivalry series are similar to what we'll see with Georgia and Georgia Tech, which you know, they're going to play game one in Athens, game two in Atlanta at Georgia Tech, and then game three in Gwinnett County at, at Cool Ray Field, as it's called. They, they do typically, as Teddy said, play a third game uh, at wherever the Braves are playing. Uh, this year, the playing surface was not going to be in condition to allow for that and there's some sort of winter festival at Truist Park and I read something about yeah, that the, yeah it, the, the outfield got messed up and it, it wasn't going to be ready for this weekend yeah and it's always going to be that's always going to be a little bit of a question um, now they, they are intending to play this as a series again in 2021 beyond that nothing is confirmed they would like to I, I spoke with Georgia coach Scott Strickland and, and he said you know we just kind of have to work out some details namely whether the field that we're going to play that third game at will be ready to be played on in February and March. And with pro ballparks, that is that is a concern because they're not necessarily ready on February 28th to have baseball played on it. So um, now, if you if you work out a contract, whether it's with the Braves or a minor league facility, what have you, that will be part of it. You know, they're not just going to cross their fingers and hope <laughs> the field will be ready on February 28th, but. Um, for this year, anyway, that was the concern. So they do move that third game to Gwinnett County. Um, but but I say it wasn't an accident because you know when I ask um, when I asked Coach Strickland about kind of how this came to be, he said we started talking about it two years ago, and it really was was simply it just made too much sense. These are my words, not his. It made too much sense not to do it that way. He said we you know we wanted to get our best pitchers involved in in these games. We wanted to give our fans an opportunity to fill up the ballparks uh, versus what you can do on a Tuesday. And look, this is a rivalry series. 
it's not like nobody was going to show up showed up to these things on Tuesdays. But, but if you know Atlanta traffic, oh yes, yeah, you're leaving work early to get there. If that game's starting at six or six thirty, you're leaving work early to get there. If unless you live happen to, to work uh, right in, in an area where they were going to be playing this thing in Atlanta, you know, if you happen to live close to where the Rusty Sea is, as they they uh, lovingly call it. Um, so yeah, so they're looking for an opportunity to get their fans a little more involved. These are obviously two fan bases that. Uh, you know, like to get after it with each other a little bit. So, um, and then beyond that, he said, look, we, we looked at what Georgia, or Georgia, we looked at what South Carolina and Clemson do every year, and they have a lot of success with that. And so why not us? You know, it just made a lot of sense. And so we went for it. And so it's kind of one of those things where it, it just seems like it got to a point with, with Coach Strickland and Danny Hall at Georgia Tech, where they kind of looked around and decided like, why aren't we doing this? You know, sometimes there's not necessarily some big epiphany moment. It's just kind of like, you know what, let's let's just talk about this and let's do it. And it feels like that was the case here where they just kind of both decided enough was enough and let's get this get this played on the weekend. And um, I'm excited about it. I think it's a, it's a rivalry that deserves this kind of treatment um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, two, the, one reason are these two programs um, are historically very good. Um, it's also two programs that are drawing players from a similar pool. Uh, you know, I wrote in the three strikes feature that talks about this, that, you know, talked about the number of kids who are from the state of Georgia on these two rosters. These are two teams that, uh, recruit locally a lot as they should with the talent in the greater Atlanta area that is available to them. Uh, Georgia more so than Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech has a little more out of state a few more out-of-state players on the roster, but, um, you know, a lot of these kids grew up playing with each other, and, um, you know, you don't want to lose rivalry games, but you also certainly don't want to lose to the kid you grew up with, because, uh, I don't know, I mean, that's me and me and our friends, play, my fl- friends playing video games growing up, you didn't want to lose to a much less a, a high Division One baseball game. So um, I think it's a, it's a rivalry series that I think is going to be served well by doing it this way. So I'm, I'm excited for it. It's a big series this year. I mean, it's not just the fact that it's these two rivals getting together. It's a meaningful series for both teams, especially with some of the struggles that Georgia has had with Richmond and Santa Clara the first couple weeks where we're questioning a little bit about what might be going on there. And, and Georgia Tech has brought some intrigue because they absolutely beat the brakes off of Ohio State last weekend uh, to make what could have been a tricky series not really tricky at all. So. Uh, should be a fun weekend, and I'm excited about the idea that this is going to be a year-after-year thing. Kudos to Danny Hall and Scott Strickland for getting this done. You know, you have to think that the relationship between those two guys who coached together uh, at Georgia Tech previously, uh, Scott was an assistant under Danny early in his career, that, that that's part of the reason why this is able to happen. And, you know, it, it's great for fans. I'm very interested to see what this means for the series because now it means Emerson Hancock and Cole Wilcox and Jonathan Hughes and, and Zach Maxwell and Court Rodig and, and CJ Smith are all going to be involved in this series. Whereas in the past, you know, your Friday starter wasn't going to pitch against one of your biggest rivals. So I, I really like you know, that aspect of it. It's going to bring in different strategic elements of this. And, and I think that's a lot of fun as well. And you know, both of these teams are already playing pretty ambitious midweek schedules as it is. You know, Georgia still has a home-and-home with Clemson. Um, Tech plays a home-and-home with Auburn. Like, they didn't really need these three midweek games to keep their midweek schedule strong. And it gives them another difficult RPI building opportunity on the weekend. And I I think that's great. And, And 
you know, yes, Georgia gets kudos as well, but Tech, I think, gets maybe a little more because they start conference play next week, and that's always one of the tricky things about the, this, this week three thing for ACC teams is that they're getting ready to play conference a conference series. The SEC teams often load up in week three knowing that they can go back home in week four and you know schedule another lighter opportunity to get right before they go into conference play. Georgia Tech is going right into conference play on the heels of this and the Ohio State series. I mean, it, it's been a, a nice, difficult, challenging schedule for the Yellow Jackets, and I'm, I'm very intrigued to see how they handle it this weekend and how they respond to having to face arms like Hancock, Hugh, Hancock, Wilcox, and Smith. Um, so it, it should be a fun one. Joe, who needs this series more? That is a, a great question. Uh, you know, if Georgia had kind of just cruised through their first two series, like I think maybe we anticipated, I think the obvious answer here is Georgia Tech, just because I think Georgia Tech might be um, might be needing, uh, you know, to, to prove a point a little bit, especially if that Ohio State series had kind of gone with, okay, Georgia Tech wins a series but loses a game, and it's a little more uh, by the book. But, you know, Georgia's in a position where um, – you know, I don't know that, I don't think internally they're necessarily feeling any sort of a panic about it. I mean, why would you? But from the outside, it's kind of like, okay, you know, what, this is not the Georgia team that we thought maybe we would see. They, they've not really been dominating the competition, very nearly split that series with Santa Clara. They had a 12-inning game in the mix there. So I think in terms of, in, at the risk of copping out a little bit, I, I think it's a little bit of a 50-50 split in terms of who's looking for it for a little different reasons. I think Georgia's looking to kind of get right, if you will, and for Georgia Tech, I think this is an opportunity for a Georgia Tech program that over the last half decade, seven years, what have you, has been a little bit more up and down. They've had seasons where they've been better than others, but it's it's been a little bit more inconsistent. An opportunity coming off of last year being the number three national seed, whether you agreed with the fact they should have, uh, whether you agreed with that or not, they were the number three national seed. Maybe this is an opportunity for them to start to stake a claim to, oh, we're going to be that type of team again, which I think would be big for this program to kind of continue to revitalize. Um, you know, Danny Hall's been there a long time, had a lot of success, and but there seems to be a new energy in this program the last couple of years. And, you know, they have things going for them this year with Danny Burrell coming in as a new pitching coach, and, and the pitchers seem to really kind of be taking to that again. And, and oh, by the way, this freshman class at Georgia Tech um, you know, we'll see what happens when they get into ACC play, but this group has been really, really good so far when you look at what Trace Gonzalez in a smaller sample size has done. Drew Compton in a much bigger sample size has done. He's been outstanding. Zach Maxwell on the mound has been so far so good. So there's a lot to like uh, with that freshman class, and it feels like maybe this is, um, like I said, maybe this is a program that's kind of staking its claim to we're going to be a power once again in college baseball, and that's way too much to read into from one series, but this could be a data point in that argument to be made. So I say all that to say, um, I expected this answer to be, if you'd asked me before last weekend, I think it would have been a clear answer of Georgia Tech from me. But now I'm not so sure that Georgia doesn't need something to give them a little bit of feel good moving forward. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. Um, it, it becomes more difficult to evaluate this because of what has happened. I think purely on the field, though, because Georgia's SEC schedule is so ridiculous that they, if they lose this series, they're going to have plenty of opportunities to you know, land other marquee series wins. I mean, you're looking at 
you know, Florida in two weeks, Vanderbilt two weeks after that, followed by AM and Auburn, and oh, by the way, Tennessee, Ole Miss, and Arkansas. Like, that's a gauntlet. So, you know, they're going to have, and it, that's not to say Tech doesn't have that. I mean, they, they, they're starting with, with Virginia Tech, which, you know, is, is off to a, a, a mediocre start at this point, but they, you know, they have, they have Florida State and, and Duke and Clemson's looking better and North Carolina and NC State. Um, you know, so it, it's there for the and Miami. It, it's there for them as well. But I, I would say, you know, purely on the field from a resume standpoint, I think this is going to mean more to Tech at the end of the season. But you know, Georgia has been shaky, like we've said, at, at certain times. And you know, getting a resounding series win against your rival is going to put all that to rest. And so I, you know, I think you can look at it from either side. You know, if you force me to pick, I guess I'm going to pick Tech. You know, again, I just feel like the their ACC slate is a little lighter, and, and adding what should be a very quality series win in February, you know, only serves to strengthen that resume. But either team, both teams are really going to benefit, and, and I can't imagine that there's a sweep here. I, you know, I think you're looking at a two and one situation, and at that point, I, I think both teams, as long as they're close games, can come out of it feeling okay about what happened. Absolutely. I think that's right. I, I think it's, um, I, I think your intuition is correct about it being a, a close series that goes two to one, one way or the other. And I think given that, you know, I think both teams come out of it with not just from the standpoint of feeling good about what you accomplished, but also then it's, it's going to be, um, it's not going to be something that's going to hurt you on the resume. These two teams are, are not going to crater from an RPI or a record standpoint. So I think it's only positive, um, you know, from from that standpoint, no matter what happens this weekend, again, barring an 0 and 3 with a really, you know, the optics of you know which are particularly bad, like that's the only outcome I could see that they would really give any either either team pause about what happened this weekend. All right, so a little bit down the road in Tallahassee, we have what they're calling a tournament. I don't know that I would call it a tournament, but I don't know what to call what's happening there. Florida State is going to host Florida Atlantic and Texas Tech. Three intriguing teams. You know, Florida State, we, uh, we thought pretty highly of coming into the season. We talked a lot about how Louisville and Miami were the ACC favorites. Well, beyond those two, Florida State was the, the next highest-ranked ACC team. That continues to be true, um, despite the fact they lost on opening day to Niagara. They haven't lost since then. It's uh, been a, a pretty good start. Outside of that, that first game for the Knowles, Texas Tech, uh, Tested itself last weekend a little bit, went two and one after a, you know, opening weekend where they, they just throttled some competition. This is another tough one. And FAU, always a tricky team, always seems to be a regional team, off to a nice start. You know, it's going to be a nice test for all three of these teams. I, I don't know that, you know, the... It's hard to say these teams are playing each other at weird times. Like who matches up against whose pitchers might end up, you know, having a significant say in who wins which games here. But overall, what I'm excited about here is just the collection of talent on the field this weekend. Yeah, it's definitely one of those. I think this was a tournament, to your point, to the extent you can call it a tournament, that was definitely born out of the fact that, you know, Tim Tadlock and John McCormick are two coaches high on my list of coaches that'll just play whoever, wherever. You know, if you tell them to show up and they've got a good game for them, they're going to be there. 
Um, and so they end up in Tallahassee. And I, it would actually be an interesting story to find out how this came to be because it, it, it is probably something similar to that, actually, as much <laughs> as that sounds like a joke, just kind of like, hey, what if we did this? Okay, let's do it. Um, and also, just quickly on FAU, because they, I don't want them to get short shrift on this conversation, I mean, this is definitely the type of weekend where you look at what they bring to the table and you're like, okay, they're off to a nice start, but like they're, they may not win a game this weekend and stuff like that. This, that is 100% when they go two and two and you're, you feel really good about what they accomplished because that's the type of team FAU always is. They have a very difficult week because after this, they play Florida and Miami in successive days and weeks. Yeah, that's, pre- that's pretty rough. But, uh, you know, John McCormick's team is all is very good about just overachieving what you think they're going to do year after year. And so it wouldn't be surprised to see them get a game or two here for sure. Um, you know, you mentioned that it's, it's kind of hard because the teams are playing at weird times and it's not necessarily like a true, like, round robin in order or anything like that. It, it is kind of a weird schedule. That seems to me like the type of situation where Texas Tech thrives because they really kind of are in a lot of ways – especially on the mound, which you spend a decent amount of time talking about, they're less of, okay, we've got this guy is our Friday guy and this guy is our Saturday guy, and we know on Sunday we want to throw these two bullpen arms to try to bridge the gap. They don't really do that. <laughs> they kind of just throw their arms out there and say, here are our seven best guys, and we're going to just piece it together. And when you're playing four games in three days against – um, or, or whatever it is. Is it four? Are they well, all so four? Florida State or, plays four. The other two of them play three. Okay. It's, it's, it's right. wild. And, but to your point, they, it actually sets up amazingly well for, for Texas Tech because Florida State plays FAU its first two games and then Tech its second two. So Tech plays FAU first on Friday. So FAU will be fresh for that. But then they play Florida State second on Saturday. So FSU is in the back end of a doubleheader. At that point, Tech will have had more than 24 hours off. And Florida State will have played twice. And then they, they finish against Florida State. But, you know, they're only playing three and FSU's playing four. So, like, it's set up for Tech to do some nice things, I would think. Yeah, no, that sounds, yeah. Despite the fact they're on is, the road. Tech is living right. I mean, yeah, getting from Lubbock to Tallahassee is not a direct flight, so they're, they're going to have to do a little planes, trains, and automobiles there to get to get to Tallahassee. But, but yeah, so on a team that is not necessarily beholden to we have to set up our pitching this specific way, I think that bodes well for Texas Tech in a tournament that's like a little wonky with how it's, how it's being played. So um, you can't really read much of the stat. I mean, yes, they played better competition last weekend and went 2-1, uh, in Round Rock, um, although we still don't really know what to make of Stanford and, and Houston that are both off to slow start. So that's one we're just going to kind of have to monitor as the season goes on. But it was undoubtedly better competition than what they saw opening weekend. But you still can't really read a ton into what you see on the stat sheet with Tech um, because they still have a whole bunch of guys that have played a whole bunch. And it, the numbers are still kind of gaudy stemming from those 20-plus run games they had in opening weekend. So uh, that really hasn't normalized just yet. Um, but I like Tech's chances to do well here. I was not aware of the setup that they have where they, they get to play FSU on the kind of the second half of that. Um, so that that's a, um, a feather in their cap as well. But it should be a, it should be a good weekend. I think we're going to learn a lot about these teams because, you know, FSU is kind of the same way, for me anyway, still trying to, to get introduced to, to who they are this yeah, season. Yeah, so I really don't know what FSU is. You know, they're they, – they, did what they did against Niagara, and then they swept Cincinnati. But that's a Cincinnati team that, while I thought was really good, is winless. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's we talked about a little bit that it, it, this feels like a backwards year for FSU. I think that was earlier this week or on last week's podcast, and it's a little bit of a backwards year where like the stuff you really feel good about for FSU is like C.J. Van Eyck and you know uh, Shane Drohan and Connor Grady and Chase Haney and all these names, Jonas Scalaro on the names that have been around forever, and then like offensively, it's kind of like a shoulder shrug a little bit outside of a couple guys and. Um, you know, if you're looking to nitpick a little bit with FSU, it's that, you know, Reese Albert's off to a slow start. And, um, you know, while Elijah Cabell has been great, like Nander DeSatis is still kind of coming around a little bit. And Matt Nelson is still waiting to come around a little bit. Um, and while we believe that will happen, um, it just does kind of <laughs> still uh, suggest that it's a little bit of a bizarro season in FSU world where, you know, we, we feel really confident about what they have on the mound. And, and on offense, we're still kind of waiting to see how it all comes together. I'm very intrigued in this from an FSU perspective because what follows this is um, the start of ACC play when they travel to Duke and then they get Georgia Tech at home and in between all of that they, they play Florida. So the next few weeks are big. This is big but those, those ACC series are bigger. Th this is going to be a, a better indication than what we've had so far of where FSU is and so I'm very interested to see how it goes for them and you know for FAU this is a you know bonanza RPI chance if you can if you can come in and, and win a game win two games whatever like it, it could be very big for a team that typically lives around the bubble there in Conference USA uh, for better or worse and, and so they usually find their way in and it could be because this year if that happens it could be because they play well in Tallahassee this weekend. One more series I wanted to touch on is Mississippi State heading to Long Beach State. And I was pretty excited about this on, on Sunday. Long Beach had just uh, finished sweeping Wake Forest. Mississippi State had won a series against Oregon State. We moved the Bulldogs up to number four and then they went out and lost uh, to Texas Southern on Tuesday. Uh, so I don't know how to handle that information. I, I don't know what to make of it yet, other than it wasn't a good game for the Bulldogs, and it's one that's going to hurt them. But this weekend, still a pretty big series, uh, a very big series. It, it's Mississippi State traveling to the West Coast. That's not an easy trip. Blair Field is wildly different from what they're used to playing in, really, uh, in, in that it's an extreme pitcher's park, especially at night. And then Long Beach State has won series against Cal and, and swept Wake. They're off to a really nice start. Joe wrote about them this week. You can check that over at, out over at BaseballAmerica.com. And it's going to be an intriguing matchup. I think, you know, people I think are pretty well versed in what Mississippi State is bringing to the table at this point. Uh, you know what Westberg, Foscue, Haven, Rowdy Jordan, everything in the lineup. There's no JT Ginn right now still out with an injury that's obviously a concern but the starting pitching especially at mississippi state has been pretty solid carlisle coster uh stepped in as a grad transfer in gin's absence last week and, and, and pitched well against oregon state i think long beach state however remains a you know they're one of the season's best surprises to this point and i don't know how many people have caught up to what is happening out there with the dirtbags but joe since you talked to first year coach eric valenzuela this week how are the dirtbags doing this? I think a part of it is they they really aren't lingering on last year, and uh, you know they and on top of that, this is a team eager to go to, to to go and say that was not us. I don't know what that team was, but it is not us. So, I think that's a team that's really really motivated. And 
I think Eric Valenzuela is a guy uniquely positioned to be able to um, to be able to allow them to do that because he you know he doesn't strike me as a type of guy that's lingering a whole lot on on regrets in the past and, and things like that. So they are really moving forward, and, and this is um, in some ways a typical West Coast team, in some ways not. So in the way they are is that they're they're going to try to pitch well to win games, and so far they've done that. Alfredo Ruiz and Luis Ramirez are a couple of uh, underclassmen in the rotation who have who have been good. Uh, Ruiz actually has been outstanding. I was selling him a little short there. And they get Adam Simoneris back. Uh, he pitched an opening in uh, the opening weekend, did not start last weekend. Uh, he is returning for this series, and that's big because he's, you know, their most proven arm and their best arm probably if he's if he's going well. Um, so that that's huge there. Offensively, they're going to look to do things a little bit different. Um, you know, he, Valenzuela was quick to kind of, uh, say we just really want to be able to beat you in a lot of different ways, which is is different from what you see from a lot of West Coast teams that really make no bones about the fact that we're just going to try to play fundamental baseball and we're going to try to get it, get them on, get them over, get them in. I guess to use that old that old cliche. Um, whether or not they can be that, we'll have to see. Um, but they do want to be more than that. Um, they they're looking to play attacking baseball. They want to they want to be able to drive the ball into the gaps. They want to be able to steal some bases. Um, their big thing is putting pressure on the defense, and that's kind of what Coach Valenzuela kind of kept coming back to, is we want to just put pressure on the defense. We want people to play, as he put it, fast catch. And to me, that's a big key for Mississippi State because they're coming off of a tough loss against a team they did not expect to lose to in Texas Southern. Um, they are without JT Ginn on the mound, um, which is, is a blow. Um, they're going to be going across the country to play against this team that's going to try to um, get them to make mistakes. And on top of that, you mentioned Blair Field being a pitcher's park and a team that's going to try to pitch to win games. You can see a Mississippi State team that's used to being able to kind of bash their way to wins if all else fails, getting a little frustrated with that. And why isn't this going the way that we thought it would go? This usually works for us. I think there's a scenario where it, especially early in the series, you know, Mississippi State can get a little frustrated. Long Beach State is pushing the issue. You know, Blair Field's rocking a little bit. The fans are really excited for this team to be good again. You know, it's, it's a good fan base when, when Beach is going well. And I think there's a scenario where things speed up on Mississippi State a little bit and they start pressing a little bit, and that's exactly what Long Beach State wants you to do. Yeah, that's one thing they can't do. They cannot, just because they lost to Texas Southern on Tuesday, freak out that that has to, Jordan Westberg after the game talked about how he thought that losing to Oregon State on Sunday was going to be a wake-up call for the Bulldogs, and it wasn't. And then this has to be a wake-up call for them. And it really needs to be because this weekend is going to test you in ways that it, you might not anticipate just because it's a, it's a very different style of baseball than what they're used to playing. They're away from home for the first time, and uh, it, it's very much a, a tricky series. It's one that the Bulldogs have the talent to win, should win, but what, you know, I would have said the same thing about, about Wake Forest. Now, I think that Long Beach matched up better against Wake Forest than they do against Mississippi State. One of the keys, uh, you know, with, with, with this pitching staff for Long Beach is just that they're strike throwers, right? And Wake Forest is a team that might expand the zone a bit on you, that might try and do a little more. Uh, Mississippi State, I think, is a little more disciplined lineup and, and a little more attuned to just putting the ball in play and, and letting innings build rather than playing for big innings. And so I think that plays into their hands better than, than what 
Beach saw last weekend from another highly ranked, powerful offense coming from the, the East Coast. So that that is one to watch. It'll be it'll be interesting to see because if uh, if Long Beach State does win this series, they're uh, they're off to what has to be one of the the better starts in in program history, I would guess. Um, whether it's that by record, I don't know. But at that point, they would have won series against three. Uh, you know, they, they would be in a Pac-12 school, an ACC school, and an SEC school. I mean, all at home, but still very impressive and. Um, would really kind of be changing the narrative on the Big West. And and just what they're doing in general is very helpful to the Big West because we talk all the time about why is the Big West RPI bad? Well, because they schedule aggressively and then they don't win games. Well, Long Beach State scheduled aggressively but is winning games, and and that's that's critical for them moving forward to to build in an RPI that will build them an at-large bid case should it come to that. Yeah, I mean, it, certainly they'll be. It, it would be too early if they win this series. I mean, let's dream big and say they win the series. I mean, um, you know, they would certainly be on their way to to building a case to be a postseason team again. I mean, they'd have to navigate Big West play, but uh, certainly that would be a difference from what we've seen from from them. Although last year things just really snowballed on them, but you look at the year before when they finished just a little under 500, and it was a oh, just a horrifically difficult schedule for them. Um, they just weren't winning those big games. To your point, I mean, this year would be uh, a reversal of that if they could they could pull this off here. D- just a quick thing too. I, I think we all use um, Warren Nolan's site as a as a nice guide in college baseball um, to look at RPI and, and conference records and things like that. But just a quick appeal: they have listed on the Long Beach State page. It says Long Beach State 49ers, which I get. I understand. Actually, no. They're not like, anymore. Even the the basketball team's no longer the 49ers. They're just beach. Oh, that's right. I did see that. Yeah. So either way, like, let's go, Warren Nolan. Like, yeah, let's, one let's of the go. more famous brands in college baseball, the LB logo. I mean, that, that's, as a quick aside, like, that's got to be one of the most iconic, like, in terms of just college baseball insignia, the LB. I mean, the Mississippi State fans are screaming at their phones I'm not saying, right now. But, like, those two I said are one definitely, of. definitely, no, those two might be, like, you know, LSU too, but, like, Mississippi State against Long Beach State, those logos, two of the best logos yeah. in college baseball this 100%. weekend on one field. Uh, while we're making appeals, uh, my, my appeal is to Beach to bring back the uniforms that just say Beach. Yeah, those were good. Let's, let's do that again. That we've, got, we've got Jared Weaver on, on the wall over there in one of those, and I look at it a lot. So let's, let's bring those suckers back. Yeah, I'm for that, for sure. All right, so those are the, the series that, and tournaments and whatever Florida State is doing that I wanted to bring attention to uh, this weekend as we, as we look ahead. And remember, you can find where to watch all of the top 25 games online uh, at BaseballAmerica.com. What to watch is what you want to click on, and there I'll list uh, where, where you can stream or, or watch on TV, whatever. Uh, all of all of the top 25 teams throughout the weekend. So if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to check that out uh, over at BaseballAmerica.com. Before we get out of here, Joe, like I mentioned, this is the 20th anniversary of the Shriners College Classic. You have been going to this tournament. I've been going to the tournament since 2016, I guess, every year. Uh, you've You went to it a lot more than that growing up in Houston. And so as we hit 20, or as this tournament hits 20, uh, what what are kind of some of your memories of of what has become college baseball's premier non conference tournament? 
Yeah, it's been a, a long, long trip for me. This I, I've said this before, but this tournament probably has as much to do with me being a college baseball fan on the level that I that I became and am than anything else. Um, I followed college baseball before that, growing up in Houston at the height of of Rice uh, with Graham and, and Augie Garrido in Texas. Like that's what got me into it. But being able to go to this tournament and see a lot of different teams locally and from other parts of the country really kind of turned me on to what college baseball is. And so it's always been a big part of, of my fandom. And I will say, you mentioned the Shriners uh, being a big part of what they do now. That really has, the Shriners element itself has breathed some new life into this tournament. And also, I feel like right around the time they kind of uh, partner with the Shriners is also when they, they really started to aggressively schedule this tournament again. Um, and you know, some years they can't, sometimes they can't help if they've already scheduled a tournament and one of the teams isn't as good as we thought. Like they can't really help that, but they've gotten it re they've gotten it really, really right more often than not recently in the last several years. And this year obviously is, is uh, the case as well. So um, some quick thoughts though. Uh, my first, my kind of oldest memory in this tournament is 2004, Saturday night, Rice coming off of a national title against Texas. Um, and that was the first college baseball game I attended that had a bonkers atmosphere. Now, I had been at that tournament all day, so I had seen two other games that day, but it was nothing like the atmosphere for that game. Um, and the announced attendance was, was something you would not have expected for college baseball in 2004. Uh, maybe now at this tournament, because it has established itself to be what it is, but this is still early in the run. Um, and Jeff Neiman was on the mound for Rice, and um, it, it was just... Um, unlike anything I'd ever seen for, for obviously for college baseball, but it felt like a, it felt like I was kind of like at an Astros game. It was fewer people, but it was the people were engaged. It was loud. It was it was all of that. So it was um, that was really cool to see. So that's probably my earliest memory with it. 2007 was my favorite tournament of um, of all the ones I attended. That was the year Arizona State was there with a team that had Brett Wallace and Ike Davis. Uh, Matt Spencer actually won Most Outstanding Player that year for Arizona State. He was a North Carolina transfer who ended up at, at Arizona State, and he hit the longest foul ball I've ever seen hit at that tournament. <laughs> There's a little section of seats, so when you're at Minute Maid Park this weekend, look up into right field right by the foul pole. There is a tiny section of seats that turns to face right. like back towards home plate, yeah. and he hit a foul ball up there, and it was the loudest sound I'd heard in my <laughs> life to that point. And What's funny is he fouled it off, and I this I might be remis, misremembering this part, but he won Most Outstanding Player, so this tracks. After that foul ball, he hit a home run on the next pitch, and it, like it wasn't as majestic, but like he was clearly like on whoever whatever poor sap was on the mound <laughs> at that particular moment. Um, but Vanderbilt was there, and this was like the breakout Vanderbilt. You know, um, you know David Price was on that team, and Pedro Alvarez was on that team, and a lot of other guys. Many people may have forgotten on the team, like Mike Miner and Casey Weathers were on that team. So that was just such a, a, a talent. It, Rice was obviously still going every year in that tournament. That was in the middle of a three-year stretch of Rice getting uh, to the College World Series. So uh, A&M was just really starting to become what they are now under Rob Childress at that time. That was a really talented Texas A&M team that was there. So um, that was my favorite tournament just because you knew you were seeing the absolute best college collection of college baseball talent on the field on that weekend. So that was, uh, that was pretty cool, too. The best individual performance I've seen was Ryan Berry, a bespectacled rice pitcher. Uh, he wore, like, the uh, Kyle Peterson glasses. And I don't think it was ironic, either. Like, I think he just <laughs> wore these glasses because he needed these glasses, and that's what he was wearing. Um, but he threw a gym against Texas A&M in 2009, 
that won him most outstanding player that year. And it's there were other good pitching performances. Michael Goodnight of University of Houston threw a one-hit shutout against Texas. 2010 or 2011, I'm forgetting the exact year on that. That might actually be a little bit better performance just from a stat standpoint, but Ryan Berry was in control of A&M the entire game. Um, it was it just unlike anything I'd seen to that point and maybe since. So, Although I did watch Kumar Rocker in the Super Regional last year. Not in person, though. I mean, that's different. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those are my, I mean, I could go on. We could do this. We could do an entire show of just this, but those stand out to me um and you know i I love this tournament and i I say i mean that sincerely i really do love this tournament it means a lot to me um so um i I, like you said i would encourage folks to to try to check out the streams because it's going to be a version of college baseball that i think makes you believe in at the risk of being sappy makes you believe in what college baseball can be in a lot of places because the fans are really really engaged in it and yes having it in a big league park in a big city helps but you know, I think it it makes you believe a little bit in what college baseball can be at the highest level. Absolutely, and you know, some more recent memories: um, Tucker Cascaden hitting the walk-off, oh, that's a great turn- one. walk-off homer for Baylor that ended the tournament a few years ago. Um, that was like that home run came out of nowhere. I felt like yeah. like only home run of his Baylor career. And you you hear like you see it, you hear the sound and you look up and you're like, "Wow, that ball's going out." Oh wait, they just won this game and like it's we're going home. Like it's all over. And that that was you know, I'll, I'll remember that one uh, definitely. Luke and Baker's coming out party. Like people knew who Luke and Baker was. He was a really big deal uh, recruit and you know, I think that year was actually in week 2. I think the tournament was randomly a week earlier. And I don't know why. I think it was a week earlier. So it's like the second week of Luke and Baker's career at TCU, and he's doing it at Minute Maid Park, and you know, he's a native Houstonian, and he gets on the mound on Saturday night, and it was electric. I'm pretty sure he homered the night before, and it was majestic. Like, And then the next year, he had another big year, this time just at the plate. He was named Most Outstanding Player in 2017. And uh, so he was you know, phenomenal. And then, of course, the... Anytime A and M and TCU played around that that time, you know, obviously they're playing in the supers uh, quite often. Then uh, it, it was it was going to be a a very thrilling game, and they treated us to a, a couple um, o- over the years there. One Saturday night marathon after another, and you know, I, I remember it was like 15 innings. It was like three in the morning when TCU finally walked off a and I don't remember a whole lot of details about the specific game. I think it was in 18, but I do remember like the celebration, like everyone storming out of the TCU dugout and I think a lot of people in the stands just breathing a sigh of relief that the game was over. <laughs> that, you know, cause it was legitimately like two in the morning and like Kirk Sarlus's kid is going crazy uh, and like getting really close to the, this storm of like 30 college kids you know, and then wait, realizing, oh wait, I'm like eight years old. I got, I got to back away from this. <laughs> this seems dangerous. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, it's it's a great tournament. It's a great tournament from from a fan perspective, from a player perspective, just from a viewing perspective. And uh, it would be even better if they would open the torches that now is oh, well. in center field at Minute Maid Park. So that is my annual plea. Please open Torchy's Tacos in, in the center field concourse. I'll be very happy if that were to happen. Unfortunately, nothing in life is perfect. <laughs> so we, we can't get Torchy's during that tournament. We cannot. I will definitely get Torchy's uh, throughout the weekend, probably more than once. And 
maybe report back on, on my findings on Monday's podcast. We can probably pencil that into the, the podcast doctrine. Oh, right absolutely, now. yeah. We don't, we don't need to get into torches now. We're, we, we've, we've rambled long enough, I think. But I'll have an update on, on Monday on the tacos. If you are to. going to Houston, though, and you aren't from Houston, Joe, what, what, is, your, what is your recommendation? Well, Torchies is a good one, um, for sure. Um, the, for my money, the best Mexican food in, in the city is, is Ninfas, the original Ninfas on Navigation. Um, it is, there are other Ninfas locations, at least as far as I know, around the city, but Ninfas on Navigation is um, probably the, my, my choice for best Mexican food in the city. Of course, there are lots of other, other great options. Um, there are tons of good barbecue places around um you know the thing about it is like there are so many that i like um that i I feel like i can't just really narrow to one or two but like any decent search for like best barbecue places in houston will turn up a list that is perfectly fine i I feel like you can't go wrong on that one that's not one where i think you need to do a lot of like specific looking to find you know stay away from for the most part for the chains obviously but like you know any any search you do to find best barbecue in houston will get the job done um, for you, like late night bites, um, House of Pies is a pretty good one. Um, that's a good place to go after hours for sure. Um, Arandas, Taqueria Arandas, is open late um, if you're kind of looking for like something in, in the, the the Mexican food realm after hours. Arandas is a, is a stay open late kind of place. So, um, but stick with you know barbecue and Mexican food in Houston, and you can't go wrong. I will add another option if you're. Looking not to looking for maybe something lighter. Or, That's or not going to put that. you to sleep. Yeah, yeah. I, I like local foods. There, I think there are three different local foods around Houston. The downtown one is not that far from Minute Maid, uh, and is in a really cool building. Uh, they have they have good ver- variety of options there, and it's a little lighter. There's a pretty good chance I get off the plane tomorrow and and and, and drive straight straight to local foods before I go out go about and do, doing some additional reporting. Um, so yeah, Houston, good eating town is the bottom line here. One other unique recommendation, this is not a lighter option, so <laughs> stick with Teddy's if you want, is a place called Just Mac. It is a macaroni and cheese restaurant. There are two locations. The one closest to Minute Maid is going to be on Westheimer. Um, that's the one I've typically gone to. Uh, there's also one on uh, Yale Street, um, north. It's, it's still technically in the city, but it's closer to the north side. Um, they just do a lot of really different, unique mac and cheese dishes served in like individual skillets, like cast iron skillets, um, and it is exactly as good as you think it is. But they some of the some of them are just wild, like stuff I would never order, you know. But I like the idea that they they were really going for it in the mac and cheese space. Um, so that's kind of a fun place to go that's unique and maybe you can't get everywhere else because a lot of other places have good barbecue. A lot of other places have good Mexican food. Not as good as Houston, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but this is a, a concept. I've seen other mac and cheese concepts, but certainly not as, as widespread as the others. So that's, that's another recommendation I have. All right. So if you're going to Houston, you, you, have, you have some options there. And I know a lot of you will be traveling to Houston for what, what should be a pretty fun tournament this weekend. So Hopefully you can uh, enjoy that and enjoy some of these, uh, these food options we've given you. And if you do like them, uh, let us know on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Or you can drop it into a podcast review over at uh, Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to the podcast while you're there, and then you won't have to wonder the next time we're posting a podcast when it'll be. It'll just show up right there in your phone. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, we are there. So 
Make sure to rate and review and subscribe if you can. We will be back here on Monday with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. We'll have a new top 25 to talk about and a lot of great college baseball action to break down. So until then, I want to thank Joe Healy for joining me. I want to thank you guys for listening, and I'll talk to you back here on the Baseball America College podcast next week.